Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. All right, this breaking news story from last night just indicates how important and how thankless a job some people have. Now, I understand as somebody who flies well a bit, not not necessarily every week, it's not something like that, but, you know, I'm on a plane at least a few times a year. And to the extent that there was ever any sort of cachet about air travel, um, it, that, that's gone nowadays. It used to be, I mean, I remember back when we had Midwest Express Airlines, and back then I used to fly to Washington, D.C. a lot. You'd get on the plane, you'd actually even look forward to it because they had, you know, these leather seats, and they were comfortable, and they'd serve you great food going out to D.C. in the morning or coming back. It was just wonderful. Well, nowadays, everything about air travel is a hassle. You're you know, crammed into these planes. It seems like they've cut down the seating area. Um, you've got everybody that's kind of on edge. You know, you're hoping that the plane is going to leave on time. You're hoping that the plane is going to get there on time. You're hoping your luggage is going to be with you. There, there's very little, I mean, it's just not that pleasant an experience, but you got to do it because you have to get there. One of the things that is particularly not pleasant is going through TSA. Look, we, we all un- understand this, and I think everybody kind of just, just hates the whole process. You've got to get in the line, and then you've got to wait till you get to the front of the line. Then you've got to show your passport or your driver's license or your real ID or whatever. Then you have to you know, go through the, the scanners, and depending on whether you've got TSA pre-check or not, the, the, the thing is, is intrusive. Then every once in a while you get pulled out of the line because they want to open your bags, or, you know, you've set off the metal detector and they want to screen you. And, and I've been through this on many times, and I can just see people getting really, really frustrated by the, this whole experience. And I, I've always just sat thought in the back of my mind, look, if you want to talk about a thankless job, That is the job that people at TSA have because you are going to be screening in any given day thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of passengers and or bags. And the truth is almost every one of those passengers and bags are not going to pose a threat. They're they're just they're not. And if you find stuff for everybody that um, you're bringing on the carry-on bag and you've got the, the, you forgot to take out the bottle of liquid that's shampoo or whatever that's, that's too big, and then they open it up and they say, you can't have this, and you get frustrated. I understand that frustration, but these people really are just doing their job. And imagine the frustration that you have if you're a TSA employee where you're sitting there thinking, okay, I'm looking at all these different bags. I've got all these people who are frustrated. They just want to get through this so they can get to the next step of their their air travel. And I know that as a practical matter, I'm not going to find anybody trying to smuggle bombs or weapons onto the, the planes. And if I happen to find something, like the people who stupidly leave a gun in their bag or whatever by mistake, in most cases, in almost all cases, it's not. It's because it's a cop who forgot to take the gun out of his or her carry bag as opposed to somebody who's going to use it to hijack a plane. But, 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 if you ever make a mistake... If you're one of those TSA people and you ever 
miss that gun and something bad happens, if you ever miss the bomb and something bad happens, you know that it's it's going to be the end of your career. It's going to be the end of lives. So it's a very, very tedious, monotonous sort of job. And people are always upset with the folks who do it. But it is so very important. And what happened yesterday demonstrates this completely. 40-year-old guy flying from Lehigh Airport, which is kind of a small airport in Pennsylvania, flying to, you know, Orlando. What he does is apparently he checks two bags. And while they're screening these bags, this isn't him going through. It's not a carry-on bag. These were bags that were checked. While they're checking the bags, TSA finds a circular compound with fuses attached inside one of the suitcases. FBI quickly determines that this is an explosive that's there. Then they look at it. Apparently, it's three inches in diameter, made of commercial-grade fireworks powder and flash powder. It's wrapped in a wax-like paper and clear plastic wrap hidden inside the lining of the baggage. Um, Both the black powder and flash powder are susceptible to ignite from heat and friction caused, and they pose a significant threat to the airport and the passenger. The explosive also had a fuse that ignites quickly, along with a hobby fuse that appears to have been added after the device was built and that burns in a slower place pace. The suitcase also contained a can of butane, a lighter, a pipe with white residue powder, a wireless drill with cordless batteries, and two electrical outlets taped together. Now, I, I don't know what this guy was intending to do with this, but this sounds like if it's not a bomb, it is close enough to a bomb for, for government work and you, you don't know what would have happened. They put this in the cargo hold, and if this thing ignites, you have no idea You know what sort of damages could be. So it sounds like you have a guy who, for all intents and purposes, was trying to put a bomb on an aircraft. Now, we, we don't know if he intended to get on the plane or not, because once they found this, they paged him and asked him to come to security. So he obviously knew what he had in the suitcase because he booked. I mean, he, he took off, and they ended up catching him, and now he's been charged with all sorts of serious things. But I, I bring this up because next time you're going through the airport and you get frustrated at TSA going, oh, I can't believe they're going to make me open my bag, or I can't believe that they're going to wand me down because I set off the metal detector, or I can't believe that they're going to you know pull me aside. Don't they know I've got a plane to catch and things? like that just remember that these people are out there you know trying to stop stuff like what happened yesterday and who knows if they hadn't done their job and they hadn't noticed this incendiary device bomb whatever word you want to use that was hidden in the lining of checked baggage if they hadn't noticed it who knows what would have happened to that flight from pennsylvania to orlando so i I guess that the takeaway for me is it's a thankless job working for tsa but we should be very thankful that they are there doing it when we come back what's nine and a half million dollars between friends i'll explain we'll discuss Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. A number of people are speculating about what, what the guy was trying to do, and I think, the, to me, the biggest question, and we're not going to really know it because they, they caught this in advance, is was, was he actually going to get on the plane? Um, and then what would have happened? Because typically, if you check luggage and you don't get on the plane, that plane does not take off. 
Was he going to try to do something while on the plane, or was he trying to get the, we'll call it a bomb, was he trying to get the bomb to Orlando, and then once he had it there, do something in Orlando? And I I don't know that we're going to know, at least in the short term, but regardless, the message is TSA gets some credit for for catching this. Okay, We're, we're having a big discussion now about whether or not the taxpayers should commit to hundreds of millions of dollars in improvements to American Family Field. Now, I've said this before. The the governor's proposal is to essentially give the brewers $300 million to to make improvements over the course of the next you know 15 or 20 years. I don't think it's going to happen like that. And that this $300 million number, and I, I've you know, there's a number of people out there that think that this is grossly in, inflated, and this is a number that the Brewers came up with and that Governor Evers just kind of signed up for. I, I think at some point in time, as I've said, it's going to get done, but I'm not sure how it's going to get done and the way it's going to get done, and I'm not sure it's going to get done for close to $300 million. But it's a discussion we're having about the value that the Brewers have to the community moving forward over the next 20 years. Well, there's something else that's in Tony Evers' budget that's, I think, maybe a little bit closer to home. You might remember about a year and a half ago, there was a proposal to create what they're calling an iron district, downtown Milwaukee, just a little bit west of our studios on Michigan. It's sort of the area... Well, um, by the but where the Ramada Inn used to be, if you can picture that, it would involve you know tearing down the Ramada Inn, and the the plan, at least on paper, was to build a, a an iron district that would have affordable housing, and it would have an entertainment venue, and it would have a hotel, and it would be anchored by a soccer stadium, and the total commitment would be one hundred and sixty million dollars. The the problem is that a a lot of those different components aren't going to happen unless there is significant commitments of public money. Now, what's already been signed off on is what we'll call an affordable housing apartment complex that's going to have like 99 affordable housing apartments. That's the the total cost is like $27.5 million. The state, the city, is is kicking in like two million, and there's like eleven million dollars in low housing credits that are going to be there. So so ultimately, between the credits and the the money the city is is kicking in through a TIF district, that that's going to underwrite the cost of well, you know, about half of it. Then there's the soccer stadium element, and, and right now I think the hotel. And the entertainment venue aspect of this are are kind of in limbo. But there's the soccer stadium aspect. The estimate is that the soccer stadium is going to cost about $45 million. That is M as in million dollars. Tony Evers, as part of his budget, wants to kick in about 20% of that. He wants the state to put up $9.3 million, which would leave the developers to come up with 35.7 million. Now the developers haven't necessarily said that they've got 35.7 million and it's up in the air as to whether they're going to ask the county or whether they're going to ask the city to help underwrite some of that cost. But right now that stadium doesn't get built unless 
you've got, oh, let's round up, uh, I guess, we, we, let's round down, $9 million in state money for the soccer stadium. The stadium, under the plans, would have a capacity for nearly 8,000. Um, the argument is that if you build this, um, there would be a professional team that the owners would bring in. They would create an estimated 50 full-time and 250 part-time jobs. The estimate is that it would host more than 20 home professional soccer matches and other events with an estimated 35% of visitors coming from outside Milwaukee and 10% of visitors coming from outside Wisconsin. And so the argument would be, okay, this 9 or $10 million in seed money is something that we need to do to get this stadium off the ground. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, well, let, let us let us tee this up. I understand 10 million or 9 million is a lot different than 290 million, but still you're talking about an investment of, in this case, taxpayer money from the state that may have to be accompanied by taxpayer money from the city or from the county to make this happen. Here is my question. Is this a worthwhile investment? And will it, in fact, bring jobs and economic development to the area? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. And the, the plan would be, if you build, if the taxpayers underwrite the cost of this soccer stadium downtown in the so-called Iron District, the plan would be that a, a minor league soccer team would play there. Marquette would play there as well. 855-616-1620. Jeff, all the people I talk to who support this in other entertainment districts always point to other cities such as Indianapolis or Cincinnati that are doing the same thing and then get frustrated at the Republican Party for being fiscally responsible. Jeff, the soccer subsidy, I think it's worthwhile, but not with my tax money. I won't go to Milwaukee because of ongoing crime, and I'd rather see my tax money go to crime reduction and police or to reduce my property taxes. Um, one of our listeners from Sturgeon Bay texts, Jeff, this is ridiculous. How does this benefit a taxpayer in Rhinelander? Are all of us taxpayers going to have to share in the profits when and if there are any? And the answer is, well, it, it, any benefit that you would get as a taxpayer in Rhinelander from this would be extremely indirect. There, there's no question. Jeff, I'm not a big soccer fan, but I do think it would be great for the economy of downtown, good for restaurants and hotels, and with all big businesses moving downtown, the city is going to be the place to be. See, that's the question. At the end of the day, that is the question. Is it really going to be great for the economy of downtown? And, and how do we quantify that? If you get, and I, again, one of the things that I'm hesitant about is I, I've seen these numbers. For example, we were sold this bill of goods. Hey, you build the hop and you're going to have all this huge ridership. And it, it never, you know, materialized. You know, we're told we spend all this money on this bus rapid transit system that's going to, you know, save eight minutes running people from the east side out to freighter. And it's going to generate all this huge ridership, which to me, I think is, is bunk. I mean, I, I just really believe it's bunk. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. So before I think you can talk about 
committing this kind of money, you have to have a real serious conversation about, okay, what what is this going to entail? And, you know, where where is the money going to come from? Is is are the developers going to need money from the county? And if so, my question is going to be, where is that going to come from? Are the developers going to need money from the city? And where is that going to come from as well? Dave in Thienesville. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hello. I, I don't think we should do it. I mean, we just got done paying a tax. I don't know. Like Maybe we're still paying it. I don't know. For the stadium, which was going to sunset in a few years, it ended up being however many, a long, long time. Anyway, um, I mean, corporate welfare, I think, has kind of gone too far. I Honestly, I want to build a patio on my house, and I'm wondering how I can sign up. I'm going to employ, like, a couple people for a few weeks. People are, can come to my house. They can have a beer. You know, I mean, where do I sign up, you know? I'll how give, do I get on Dave, the list? Th- Dave, thanks for call. I'll, I'll get you Tony Evers' office number. Maybe you can make that call. Let's take a quick break. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Already caught up on breaks, aren't I, August? Uh, aren't I, um, Isaac? Oh, see, that almost never happens. Look here, here's the deal, uh, Jeff. I'm um, look. It's I don't think this is a hop. I have a hop. This is soccer. It is literally the world's number one sport. Well, okay, I understand soccer is the world's number one sport, but we're not talking about bringing a Premier League English team, you know, here, uh, Jeff. And remember, people are making this point in the texts. Please don't kid yourself. The growth of downtown is going to stay flat until something is done to put a halt to the growing crime problem that exists. And a number of people are saying, okay, if we've got this money to throw around, you know, maybe maybe first we should start investing money in things that are going to bring down the crime rate and things like that. Jeff, my question is, could we subsidize the cost of the stadium and could that attract a major league soccer team? Well, the, the stadium they're talking about building is 8,000. So, I mean, I don't know what the capacity is of like major league soccer teams, but that's out there. This is the decision that we are facing right now. Okay, WTMJ breaking news time is 1231 p.m. From the WTMJ Breaking News Center, Mike Spaulding. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I apologize in advance because this is one of these moments where I am having, my head is about to explode moment, and you will be having this as well. As I said, um, going into the, the break, the final Jeopardy answer is million. The question, how much per bed is the new juvenile justice, quote-unquote, correctional facility scheduled for Milwaukee going to cost? $2.4 million. Now, Urban Milwaukee, which is one of these local websites, they they have these numbers, and it's almost staggering. Now, just let me kind of back into this. Um, for years and years, we housed juvenile offenders in Lincoln Hills, which is kind of in the Wausau area, had 400 beds. And there was all this controversy involving Lincoln Hills and, you know, whether or not the, the juveniles were being, um, you know, treated properly, etc. And then there was a movement afoot that said, hey, well, what we would like to do, since the majority of the people who get sent to juvenile corrections come from the Milwaukee area, it would make sense 
if we had a juvenile correction facility that was closer to home, right? So, you know, for those kids who do have family and friends and something that want to go visit them and help in the rehabilitation process, it would be easier for them to do that. That that all makes sense to me. So they started the process of trying to figure out, okay, where are we going to build a juvenile detention facility closer to home? And they settled on this area in northwest Milwaukee, not where Northridge is, but where an, an old um, DMV testing facility back when you if, if you remember back when you used to everybody used to have their car emission tested and they had big DMV facilities that you would go to. This one is on the northwest side. It's a little bit north of Good Hope Road and a little bit west of 76th Street. OK, that's the plan. The original price tag for this, and this was what was approved, was $45.6 million. Now, just keep this number in mind, $45.6 million. And for $45.6 million, we were going to get a 32-bed prison. And we've talked about that before. 32 beds for $45.6 million. Well, here's the new story. The cost of this 32-bed prison has now gone up from $45.6 million to, wait for it, $78.4 million. That translates into a cost of $2.4 million a bed, $78 million which is way beyond what was authorized when, you know, they they talked about building this facility. As part of his budget proposal, Tony Evers, who spends money like, well, I would say it's like a drunken sailor, but that is an insult to drunken sailors. He proposed an additional $32.6 million on top of, the money that had already been approved, that 45.6. So if Evers gets his way, it's going to cost over $78 million to build a 32-bed juvenile correctional facility in you know Milwaukee County. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, I, I have two comments on this, but my first comment starts off with, Stop the madness. At this point in time, Republicans in the state legislature, it seems to me, need to put the brakes on this thing before this completely spirals out of control. I've got two points. First of all, what is going on with a 32-bed facility? As we have talked about before, 32 beds? Are you nuts? You you probably need 320 beds. Hasn't anybody been looking at what is going on in with juvenile crime in southeastern Wisconsin? Seriously, you you build a 32 bed facility at a cost of over 2.4 million dollars per bed. It's going to be it's going to be filled up the first half hour it is open. <laughs> this. 32 beds is nothing given the fact that we have juvenile crime that has exploded to the level it has. Why in the world would we build a facility which is so woefully inadequate as to size? That's number one. Number two, what is going on with this cost? 
Seriously, 78.4 or whatever, 78 plus million dollars to build a 32 bed facility at some point in time. Look, I have no problem with, I I guess, with with the location. If people have decided that's better than Northridge or or wherever, but 32 beds, 78 million dollars at some point. How did this how did this get this expensive? What is going on here, and how can it be this much? It seems to me that we've got to, before this white elephant gets built, what you got to do is put the brakes on this right now and say, wait a second, what is our long-range plan? Are we serious that we're only going to have a 32-bed facility, number one? And number two, how can it possibly cost this type of money? You would think for $78 million, you would be able to get a much larger facility. And I guess my other point would be, rather than investing $78 million to build a 32-bed facility, if it's really costing that much, well, let's let's spend more money, but let's build a facility that at least has the chance of housing enough people to deal with the crime problem. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. This whole thing has just been stunning. The the woefully inadequate size of the facility and now the spiraling costs. And nobody appears to be stepping back and saying, wait, how, how does a facility that was budgeted to cost what was the number? The original price tag, $45.6 million. How does this suddenly you know, turn into a $78-plus million facility without substantially being increased? Now, again, if, if, if the governor had said, look, this is crazy to only build a 32-bed facility, and you know, we need to build one that's going to have 100 beds, I would argue that that's probably light, but 100 beds, and so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to you know, kick in you know, another $30-plus million or whatever to get it to the right size. You could at least make that argument. But this is the same size. It's a 32-bed facility, $2.4 million average per bed, 855-616-1620. we got to stop the madness and figure out what's going on here. And I'm all in favor of building a youth facility, a correctional facility. I'm all in favor of building it closer to where the majority of the inmates are going to come from. But 32 beds for 78 million bucks? We discuss in a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Look, these numbers are, are staggering. You know, we're having this conversation about building a, a new youth correctional facility in Milwaukee County. That, that's fine. Um, they estimate about two-thirds of the juvenile inmates come from this this area. So it makes sense to have them closer. But what I it's never made any sense to me is you're going to build a facility that can only house 32 people, which is, which, which is just crazy. It's going to be filled up within the first 30 minutes. You know, we need to be building a facility that can handle three, four, five times that many people. Secondly, the cost has apparently, according to Tony Evers, it has suddenly magically gone from 40... Um, $45 million that was approved a year ago to now almost $80 million, and it's not any bigger. I mean, what what is going on here? At maybe this is the point in time where somebody, you know, what some of the Republicans, for example, in the Finance Committee, need to put the brakes on this and say, wait a second, let's figure out what we're doing here. And this comes from the perspective of somebody who's in favor of building a juvenile correctional facility just 
not a juvenile correctional facility that sounds like it's going to be a Taj Mahal and is way too small from the jump. Let's start with Sean in Waukesha. Sean, you're on WPNJ. Yes, hi, Jeff. I was just wondering, I uh, interned at Ethan Allen Boys School when I was in college, and they unexpectedly closed that down. I'm wondering, why aren't we reopening that in comparison to building something brand new? Well, Sean, thanks for the call. That's a fair question. Um, the, the, now, here, here's the, the, the sort of shorthand answer for it. Ethan Allen School for Boys in Wales, um, it, it goes back to 1905. That's when it was first built, and it was originally like a hospital or a, a, a place where they sent people with tuberculosis and things like that. And then in the 50s, it became a re- reform school. What happened is, and a lot of legislators are still shaking their heads about this, in 2011, the decision was made to close Ethan Allen and send people up to Lincoln Hills in in Wausau. And the decision was because they looked at it and said, this is a really, really old facility, and there's asbestos, and there's mold, and there's all these different things, and it's just not cost-effective to try to, you know, make improvements. Well, okay, that... That might have been the case back then, and I, I understand. But now, now that you're talking about, you know, almost eighty million dollars for a thirty-two bed facility, I, I think it maybe is a fair question. Saying, okay, how much would it really cost to go in and do what you need to do to that Ethan Allen facility? Because at least you've got a larger facility that's out there. But to answer your question, I mean, the reason was it would cost too much, or at least they decided in 2011, it would cost too much for remediation and things like that. Well, now with the cost of, of, of this current youth prison just spiraling out of control, maybe that's something that should be back on the table. Vincent in Lannan. Hi, Vincent. You're on WTMJ. Uh, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, one of the major problems that, that was happening up in Lincoln Hill was it was overcrowding. And I don't know how many beds they have up in Lincoln Hills, but I'm sure it's probably more than the ones they're talking about building down here in Milwaukee. Yeah. And, and then when you inflate this price of it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And I don't understand. How can you come? Nobody understood that it was just going to be 32, 32 beds. Where did this come from all of a sudden? I, yeah, I mean, I, I was... I, I'm with you. I mean, all during this conversation about, you know, do you need a youth facility and things like that, I thought it was going to be something that really would, uh, again, provide opportunities to take all these hardcore juvenile offenders that need to get off the street and give them the rehabilitation they need and all that. I had, I got to tell you, Vincent, I had no idea it was just going to be 32 all along either. And now that you see it's almost $80 million for a 32-person facility, you, 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 I just don't understand how th- this cost can spiral out of control like this. Is the first time they open it, it's going to be overcrowded. The same problems they had up at Lincoln Hills, the overcrowdedness, and, 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 and all of a sudden uh, you're going to start having the same problems you had up at Lincoln Hills. And so, no, they, they need to go back and, and refigure this thing because it, need, it needs to be bigger in order to justify the price or the fact that uh, somebody needs to go back to the drawing board on this whole thing. Yeah, no, thanks to call, Vincent. I, I agree completely. And, and here's, I mean, now here's the, the opportunity for this. Now that, now that apparently they've decided they need an extra, you know, however many million dollars, now the Republican-controlled Joint Finance Committee gets a, gets a chance to take a look at this. And, and my advice would be, what, what is going on here? Why do you build a facility that we all know is going to be too small? Why go through this? But also... 
I think it's more than fair to say, hey, we're talking about a commitment of taxpayer dollars. How, where are these cost estimates coming from? And if it's really now going to cost $80 million, um, when we thought it was going to cost you know, $45 million, what has happened over the course of the last year or two? Now, I understand interest rates have gone up and things like that, but how does something that's budgeted for $45 million, how does that suddenly become $78 million? And my guess... My guess is for those of you like in the real world, you know, you've made a you're making an improvement on your house or something like that, or you're building a house or whatever, and you've committed to, okay, gosh, I'm gonna, you know, spend I'm gonna spend three hundred and fifty thousand dollars on the house, and then you all of a sudden they're told, Well, it's going to be another you're gonna have to come up with another, you know, two hundred thousand dollars to finish it. You're gonna go, wait a second, what's going on? I'm not against the prison, not at all. But I think it needs to be bigger. I think it needs to be located in an area where there's enough room to allow for growth because, unfortunately, I don't think juvenile crime is getting any better. And I think you've got to get this spending under control, including answering these questions about how did it get so completely out of hand. And Again, if you do the math, we're talking about building a juvenile correction facility at a cost of $2.4 million per bed. There's got to be a way you can do it cheaper, isn't it? Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. More Jeff Wagner right after this. This whole youth prison thing is just a train wreck. And I, somebody just needs to say, we gotta, we got to stop this before there's a collision. Jeff, look a little bit deeper into the issue. Democrats, including Tony Evers, want to avoid incarceration at all costs in the name of social justice. They often cite the cost of incarceration as one of their reasons. My guess is this is a deliberately overinflated price and reduced size to facilitate the political Goal. Jeff, if the master plan is that by only having 32 beds forces the judges and the DA to turn hoodlums back out on the street, I think that's what's going on because Tony Evers wants to reduce incarceration. Jeff, I don't always agree with you, but you're spot on with this prison cost issue. Jeff, I think you could build a new luxury hotel for $80 million. Well, if... if I were if I were coming to developer, if I was a developer and I was going to try to go get financing and I would say, okay, I'm going to build a resort hotel with all the greatest amenities and the cost is going to be two point four million dollars a bed. I have a feeling that I wouldn't be getting any sort of money from this at all. Um, yeah, Jeff, I would say a facility like that would have a 30-lane bowling alley and a 32-by-50-foot swimming pool, among other things, for that kind of money. Jeff, there's an old dorm building for sale by Alverno College, 60 rooms. It's on the market for under a million dollars. It's move-in ready. <laughs> well, I'm not saying put the youth prison out in Alverno College, but I, I am saying build it to meet the need. And, and actually, I think, you know, th- there is something to some of this that's out there. I mean, Governor Evers has been very clear since he ran for re-ele- for election the first time. He wants to reduce Wisconsin's prison population. He doesn't like the fact that people are going to, to jail. 
um, ju- judges in juvenile court, one of their excuses in not sending people to prison and say, we got no space. You know, we've got no space in these juvenile correctional facilities as it is. So we, we can't. That's why we didn't send this person to, you know, that's why we didn't put him in, in custody. And so that's why we really had no choice when they went out and they killed somebody. It's really not our fault. Well, this perpetuates the whole system. And it's really clear. First of all, if we're going to build a juvenile facility, build it big enough to house the need. Okay, that's number one. And number two, let's get the costs under control. That shouldn't be too much to ask. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 I, I just put up a link to the, the story that we just talked about. $78 million for a 32-bed juvenile corrections facility. That's a 71% increase in projected costs. And my conclusion was it's crazy and it's way, way, way too small and way, way, way too expensive. And my suggestion is let's take a deep breath before we start blowing taxpayer money and and get this one right. Is that too much to ask for? Oh, by the way, while you're at my Twitter account, I sent something out earlier today. There's a um, I, it's a it's a funny piece, I, I thought, in the New York Post. If you follow sports, the the I think everybody is, is just tired of the Aaron Rodgers drama. You know, if you read a lot of stuff, it, I mean, Aaron Rodgers has always been high maintenance. But, you know, at some point in time, you know, the, the high maintenance is worth it. And I think a lot of the people around the Packers think that it's just his his skills have declined a bit and that it's just that the daily hand-holding and the daily drama of trying to keep Aaron Rodgers happy, it's become more trouble than it's worth. And and that's, I think, you know, the, the biggest mistake is that they didn't come to that conclusion a, a year ago. But the, the drama is, will he retire, won't he retire? And let, let's be honest, Aaron Rodgers ain't walking away from a $58 million contract. He, he's just not going to do that. So the real issue is, you know, will... Will he play? Is he going to play in Green Bay, or is he going to um, be traded somewhere? And unfortunately, because of the way the Packers structured the last deal, they have almost no leverage. So he can keep them waiting as as long as as he wants. And so that there's a piece in the New York Post, and of course, one of the things is the most likely place for Aaron Rodgers to get traded is the New York Jets. That that's what I think they've got. They, they can make cap space for him, and he'd be reunited with his former offensive coordinator. And a lot of the thinking is that the New York Jets might be one player of Aaron Rodgers' caliber, even at 39 years old, away from getting to the Super Bowl. Who, who knows? But the piece is, uh, make up your mind already, Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers famously once told the Packer fans that he had five letters for them, R-E-L-A-X. Remember that? When this New York Post, the editorial says, well, we now have six letters for Aaron Rodgers. E-N-O-U-G-H. Enough. <laughs> I think that that speaks for a lot of Packers fans as well. I've got a link to that article. Again, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Okay. I want to, uh, and you heard Sandy talking about this during the, the newscast. Robin Voss, who is the Speaker of the Assembly, he says that um, he is going to, again, push 
toll roads in Wisconsin to raise money for transportation infrastructure. Now, right now in, in Wisconsin, the, the way that we essentially pay for road repairs and, and road building is we do it through a gasoline tax that has been you know, frozen in place for, for quite a while. We pay it through auto registration fees, and then there's a small added fee that electrical vehicles pay because they don't you know, buy gasoline, but they use the roads. But there's always this tension about where, where is the money for roads going to come from? So Robin Voss, and he, he did this again yesterday, he said that he's, he's willing, open, and I think a fan of implementing a tolling system in Wisconsin in an effort to boost revenue for roads and, and bridges. And he acknowledges that, well, even though he might be a proponent of this, he, he doesn't know where Governor Evers on, is on this, and he recognizes that the Republicans in the Senate aren't necessarily thrilled with this as well. When this idea was kicked around um, a, a number of years ago, um, during uh, also during like the Scott Walker ad- administration, one of the things they pointed to was that when they looked at surveys on tolling, they found that about 23 cents of every dollar collected in tolls is spent on building and operating the toll collection system instead of going through towards fixing roadways. So you've got this huge overhead cost that it costs you 25 cents out of every dollar just to implement and, and do the, the tolling system. In addition, I know that there are people out there who said, well, you know, when we drive to Illinois, we've got to pay on the toll road, so, you know, why... You know, we, we should stick it to the Illinois people. Well, the law and the Constitution is very clear about this. We can't, you're not allowed to just put toll roads in, say, on the, the stretches of road that run from the Illinois border to Milwaukee or the Illinois border that run to Beloit and up to Madison. If, if you're going to do toll roads, you have to do toll roads all across the state. In addition, if you're going to use toll roads, you essentially forego um, federal money for highways. So it's a balancing, and you've got to really be sure the toll roads are going to generate the money. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. So let's tee this up. Toll roads throughout the state. Is this a good idea? My answer is, I don't think so. I'd really have to see the numbers to be convinced that this makes any sense. I I think as a start, if you wanted to dip your toe into this, you could do what some states do, which is uh, create designated like lanes where you need to use. For example, if you've ever driven around Atlanta, um, there's the regular highways that go through Atlanta. And then they have like high speed, quote unquote, high speed lanes that you have to pay to get in. And so those those move faster. Maybe something like that is a way to dip your toe in. But I just don't think in Wisconsin that we're ready to go to toll roads. But I'm willing to have the discussion. 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. What do you think we discuss in just a moment? Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. You know, I, I also, we're having this conversation about toll roads. And my question is, do you, you know, Robin Voss says he's open to the idea of toll roads. I 
my initial reaction is, no, I don't think it makes any economic sense at all. Candidly, I mean, I don't think the road system in Illinois is particularly better. They generate money through the, these tolls, but I, I don't I don't see major improvements. I don't think that the quality of the roads is any better in Illinois than it is in Wisconsin, so I'm not convinced that that's a success. And you, you have, first of all, the huge cost of, of upkeep. One of our texters says, Jeff, in 2022, the Illinois State Highway Toll Authority they require a large, expensive workforce, offices, etc. Uh, the toll authority had 1,704 full-time employees, of which 754 are toll collectors. And don't forget about pension plans. Yikes. I think a simple gas tax increase would be far cheaper to manage and much easier to implement. Well, I, I agree with that. And, and like I say, if you wanted to dip your toe in this, you know, maybe... Again, designated toll lanes where you could, like, a, you could, again, if you wanted to try to, like, bypass traffic, but something that would be optional, that might be a way of seeing if there's any sort of interest in this at all. Jeff, as the owner of a company, of a trucking company that primarily operates in Wisconsin, my operating costs would go up. Therefore, I would have to raise my rates, which would then be passed on to the consumer. How would this affect the Wisconsin economy? Yeah, I, I think there's a huge element of um, that. Uh, Jeff, my objection to toll roads is that for all the proposals in Wisconsin so far, just like with red light cameras, they're talking about using private firms to install and operate technology and collect the fees, thereby keeping a sizable profit margin on every payment in exchange for the government not having to make that investment. Um yeah, I think there's the element of that. Jeff, I don't like toll roads, and I avoid them, drive on highways to avoid the Illinois interstate roads. Well, that's – look, I, I think in Wisconsin we have a, a pretty good system of roads. I appreciate that the problem is, you know, how do you continue to make the upgrades and the improvements? But at a time right now where we're looking at a budget surplus – I mean, I quite candidly, you know, if you wanted to make a commitment to, okay, this is where this is where our big road needs are, and we're willing to invest the resources to do it. This, to me, if you aren't going to return the surplus to the taxpayers who contributed to the surplus in the first place, well, you know, then you know what ends up happening is, okay, I think you could make a strong argument that it's not the uh, you make a strong argument that, you know, if you're not giving it back to the taxpayers, this would be a good way to spend some of the money. Jeff, one of the best things about living in Wisconsin is that there aren't any toll roads. My response is heck no, although he doesn't say heck no. Um, Jeff, why is it that some states have tolls and others don't? Well, it's a decision that the states make, and it goes back many years. The thing is, if you're doing toll roads, you forego federal highway funds. So... You have to make the calculation that the amount of dough that you are going to generate is sufficient um, to exceed the amount of money you're giving up from the, the federal highway funds. And, and that's that's kind of a tough calculation. And like I say, when I started this conversation, a lot of people say, well, let's stick it to Illinois. Let, let's put the toll booths, you know, right on the state line. 
And what people need to realize, again, is you can't do that legally. There's this thing called the Commerce Clause in the Constitution, which says that you can't treat out-of-state, in this case, out-of-state motorists, different than you would state treat in-state motorists. So you couldn't say, okay, Wisconsin people have to pay the toll, don't have to pay a toll, and Illinois does. You, you have to put these things, um, you know, all over. Jeff, I would love to see where the Illinois toll road income is actually spent and use that as our role model. Um, yeah, that's it. Jeff, I forgot to go online and pay the tolls for our trip to Chicago last weekend. Thanks for the reminder. Tolls are a pain. Just raise the gas tax and make it easier on everyone. I have, about a year or two ago, I think it was the first time we drove one of our cars down to, to Florida. I, I got I got that I-pass, you know, and, and the way that works is you just you put it on your windshield and you you drive various routes and it, it's hooked up to the Illinois toll system and it's hooked up to another of other tolls along the way, but not everything. And what happens is you put your, it's tied to your credit card and you put money in the account. And so it just automatically deducts that money from your account as you go through the toll booths and stuff. And and it's it's convenient, but there's also a learning curve that's out there. there there's no question about it. Jeff, I've lived here all my life, and the state's motto is forward, um, but we are so backward in so many things. Toll roads are all over the country, and we need the revenue it produces. We pay other states toll road fees. Why not here? Maybe our taxes wouldn't be so high. Well, again, that's the question. The question is, is it going to generate that much revenue? And would you have it? Would you be a net loser? And that, that's the thing. If you had to pay tolls every time you got on the freeway, you commute to downtown Milwaukee, you live in Brookfield. So you get on the freeway and you drive downtown and you have to pay tolls one way or the other. You know, would you? Would you, at the end of the day, be a net winner or a net loser? And if people try to figure out ways to just say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to go on the freeway, for example. I'm going to take Wisconsin Avenue or I'm going to take Blue Mound Road or I'm going to take whatever. Would enough people use that as an alternative? Would we generate enough in tolls? We're not Chicago. We don't have that volume of traffic. I raise these different questions because, candidly, I just don't think tolls make sense. And before we go down this route, there needs to be a lot of study showing that it would really be a benefit to the taxpayers after we take out all the money that's going to go to overhead. And, candidly, I'm just not sure that that's there. And I don't think that that's necessarily backward. I think that's reflecting the reality that recognizes that our traffic volume isn't anything close to what, for example, uh, northern Illinois is. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. A couple of people are pointing out that uh, the the Illinois toll booths are are no longer staffed. I was going to say manned. I'm not sure you're supposed to say manned anymore. They are no longer staffed because both men and women were toll collectors. Um, That's that's true with an asterisk. What what happened is, again, um, since about 2019, the overwhelming majority of transactions, people have these I-passes or the easy passes, again, the things that you, um, you sign up, you have an account, it's tied into your credit card. You put money in your account, and then it just automatically debits. It's automatically deducted as you go through. And I, again, like I say, I, I got one. It's still it's up. It's up on my car. Um, 
just because it, it was a convenient way to do that. And so then as part of the pandemic, Illinois, the Illinois Tollway said it was going to permanently, you know, eliminate cash toll collections. The idea is this was during COVID and they didn't want the idea that you could, there might be COVID germs on the money and you'd be touching the toll collector's hands or whatever. So they did away with that. Um, they did away with that about, well, a year ago or so, a little bit more. But but here's the thing. It really hasn't saved any sort of money because apparently that the six or 700 people who were toll collectors, who were actually like working the booths and stuff, um, they, they weren't they weren't fired. They were offered different positions at the agency. <laughs> so they, they were kind of shuttled around. So for for people who were saying, well, okay, the, the costs aren't as great as they used to be because you don't have the in-person booths, I don't know that that's really the case because it's not like there was, hey, we're going to get rid of a, a lot of employees. It's just we're going to like move them around. And, yes, they're not going to be in the toll booth, but they're going to be doing other things. Again, I just – but before we go down this route, to me, it's a do the math and do your math sort of thing and just add the stuff up and, and figure out if it makes sense. And my guess is I don't think it's going to at this point in time. As long as we were talking about Chicago, there there was a really watershed moment that happened on, on Tuesday. There was the, the mayoral primary and Lori Lightfoot, who... A lot of people think she was the worst mayor in the country. I don't know that that's fair, but she was one of the three or four worst mayors in the country. Lori Lightfoot, the incumbent mayor, didn't even get out of the primary. She ran third behind two other people. So she's going to be leaving office after one term. And what really sunk her, uh, other than the fact that uh, she's kind of a... Well, she's kind of a jack wagon, you know, just and and alienated a whole bunch of people. But what really sunk her was the fact that that crime spiraled and she had no clue as to how to deal with crime. So now it's real interesting that the people that are and the the mayoral election in Chicago is the same day as our state election, April 4th. The two people that emerged from it, one is a guy named Paul Vallis, who was uh, on, on the on the council he he ran four years ago he ran ninth he was the vote over he was the top vote getter and he is the overwhelming favorite to be the next mayor of chicago and and why because his, his opponent is they're both democrats but his opponent is a guy named brandon johnson who is a county commissioner and very very liberal and vallis is he's a Democrat, but he's a conservative Democrat, and he's been running on a platform of anti-crime. And he recognizes that crime is the top priority for voters. And I think the general consensus is that Chicagoans are just sick to heck of -of out-of-control crime, and and they want somebody who's at least going to try to deal with this. And so this... This election is sending like warning shots, I think, across the bow of mayors all over the country because it says that voters aren't satisfied with what's going on with crime and they want to see major improvements and they want people with ideas and they're sick of all this defund the police BS and things like that and they they want 
people that are going to support law enforcement and do more than just give law enforcement some lip service saying, hey, we're we're serious about the crime problem. So we'll, we'll have a better indication on, on April 4th about this. But Lori Lightfoot goes down in defeat, a blazing defeat, and a lot of it is because she couldn't figure out how to control crime. WTMJ Breaking News Time is 1.31 p.m. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Wisconsin, it might be cold out right now. Maybe you're going to get some snow depending on where you live in the area over the weekend. But soon, trust me on this one, it's going to be warming up and you need to get your home ready. That's why I'm here for the Jeff Wagner Spring Home Improvement Showcase. It is presented by our friends at Great Midwest Bank. And this week, we are brought to you by the Home Market. Check out their new location in downtown Milwaukee, 151 South 1st Street, or visit their website, shopthehomemarket.com. That's the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase on WTMJ. Say hi for me when you get down to the home market. They are great people. Okay, my, this is, my, my wife is a big fan of dollar stores. Uh, and, and you know it's it, it's interesting because you say well I you know I'm I'm going over to the dollar store and I'm going what what do you get at, at the dollar stores and so well, you'd be amazed at what you get at the dollar stores and she'll go and she'll buy greeting cards for example you know I bought a bunch of birthday cards or I bunch, bought some St Patrick's Day cards to send out and or I, I went I somebody we know was having a birthday or whatever and I went and I bought balloons at the dollar store it's it's amazing what you can find at these various dollar stores. And one of the things is, you know, if in many respects, when you're talking about small purchases, I'm, I'm beginning to think that if they don't have it at the dollar store, maybe you don't really need it. But anyhow, my, my wife likes to patronize these places. And I, I really don't have much of a position on this simply because, um, as I've said before, I'm I, I, my, my life is spent trying to avoid going into stores. I'm, I'm a buyer, not a shopper. And so I'm very, very fortunate that my lovely and charming wife, she, she enjoys doing shopping and she goes and takes care of all this stuff, particularly in going to the dollar store. I'm going to go get, you know, we've got these different, you know, uh, I got to get some thank you cards or whatever. But she, she, she knows where the dollar stores are. She patronizes them and there's no question about it. She, she likes them and there is a saving of money, even though, um, a lot of the dollar stores aren't dollar stores anymore. That is that not everything's a buck. And, you know, sometimes stuff is two bucks or three bucks or four bucks. But I think for people who like them, they, they like them. Now, I bring this up because there's a big story in the New York Times and also in USA Today that um, apparently there's an, a new report that was published earlier this week saying that many, many cities have declared war on on dollar stores more than 70 cities and towns already have blocked new projects for chain dollar stores 50 cities have enacted laws to limit plans for expansion now the three main retailers the three main dollar stores are dollar general dollar tree and family dollar family dollar is also dollar tree it's the same company um there and, and the argument is that these stores, this is kind of like the Walmart argument. You know, the argument against Walmart years ago was that Walmart comes in and Walmart will build their Walmart superstore on the outskirts of town and everybody will shop 
at the Walmart, and that means that you know uh, Jeff's Hardware Store downtown can't compete with Walmart, and then Jeff's, Wal- Jeff's Hardware Store ends up closing, and Jeff ends up working for Walmart. That that was the argument, and my response to that had always been, well. That that's kind of like free enterprise, you know. If if Jeff's downtown hardware store couldn't compete with Walmart, that wasn't the problem of, of the consumers. That that was the problem with with Jeff and, and the hardware store. And you know, people get to make those decisions. So the argument about the these dollar stores is that typically dollar stores will cluster in, in certain neighborhoods. And in rural towns, they'll typically locate near the only grocery store, and they'll essentially succeed in wiping out that that grocery store because people will patronize the stuff at the at the uh, dollar store, and they'll stop buying other stuff at the grocery store, and the grocery store goes under. You know, we've seen that over the years in Milwaukee, where you've had like the dollar stores that have wanted to locate, like in the third ward or something, and you'd have people come in and say, "No, we don't want it." dollar store in this third ward you know we want to have i don't know a high-end restaurant or whatever our number is 855-616-1620 that is the old national bank talk and text line okay i, I want to talk about this, this phenomenon to me there is a reason why dollar stores are, are so successful and th- this idea that you have governments whether it's towns or cities that want to block them is kind of beyond me if dollar stores are succeeding it is because people like what their products are on top of that we hear all this conversation about i don't know food deserts and things like that in some respects you know that the dollar stores fill that need it's kind of like you know quick trip as a convenience store you know fills this need does it replace a full service you know grocery store no but it can you know provide you know in some cases it can provide food it can provide vegetables they can do things like this that Okay, maybe it doesn't make economic sense for a, a full grocery store to do. 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. All right, do you like dollar stores, and are there too many of them? And I guess who gets to decide whether there's too many of them or not? We discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. This segment, we're talking about dollar stores, and the the big chains are, of course, Dollar General, Dollar Tree, which also owns and operates Family Dollar. But there there has been, uh, there are a number of communities that have passed all sorts of rules and, and laws which are aimed at, at stopping the spread of these businesses. And the idea is these are not bis- desirable businesses to have. And I guess I just I, I just think this is a, a clueless. Uh, approach, you know, and, and we saw it play out in Milwaukee a while back. Where downtown, they wanted to put a do- one of the dollar stores in, and people said, "Well, that's not the type of store we'd like. We'd like a high-end boutique retail and stuff." Well, no, the, like the dollar store fills a, a need that is there, and if a dollar store goes into an area, it's because the people that are making these calculations determine that you can make money by by doing that. Jeff, I love dollar stores, but I call them dollar and 25 cent stores since that's the majority of the items. The balloons are the best. At grocery stores, the price can be five or six times that amount. 
Jeff, I used to love and frequently shop dollar stores, but what I'm finding now is long ways to check out because they're always busy and they have few employees in order to keep costs low. Um, well, I mean, that's always a challenge that people are going to face. Jeff, I love our $1 general in town. It's easy to shop. It's close to home on a side of town that has no real food stores. Jeff, dollar stores fill a need. They're like the old five and dime stores and are an adjunct to grocery stores that don't carry everything. Um, Jeff, Egg Harbor in Door County blocked a dollar store construction. It's badly needed for all the service and seasonal workers. Yeah, see, that's, that's, and that would be a classic example of that. I could see Egg Harbor. Well, we're, we're hip and trendy Door County, and we've got all these little boutiques and shops and fancy little restaurants and stuff. And by the way, I like Egg Harbor. I love Door County. That's not the point. But you've got, you know, people that are, I don't know, that are working there, uh, for example, the seasonal workers or the residents who say, well, okay, maybe I I just, I don't know, I, I don't want to pay six bucks for the birthday balloons or I, I don't want to pay $4 for the greeting card. I want to get it for a buck or a buck and a quarter. I, why why shouldn't we encourage things um, like that Jeff, the Dollar Tree is now dollar and a quarter tree as well. My wife is a firm believer in getting something for next to nothing. So yes, we frequent the dollar stores on a regular basis. Mike in Illinois. Hi, Mike. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think? Uh, I love the dollar store too. Um, I go to Dollar Tree. Um, kind of like what that uh, one caller or texter said that it's an adjunct to the grocery stores. In my uh, what I think is it's an adjunct because Dollar Tree does not, and Dollar Stores in general, do not provide fresh food. There's always going to be need for that, and that's what the grocery store does. However, Dollar Stores are easier, they're more convenient, and they're cheaper, and I think they're great. And um, I think, you know, I understand, like, Egg Harbor doesn't want one. Well, you know, communities can have self-determination. So if they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. But I think most major communities like them. Yeah, no, thanks for the call, Mike. I, I agree completely. And I, I think, you know, th- this idea, look, I, you know, what's so funny to me is you always have some of these politicians who are arguing for higher and, and better use uses of things. Uh, I remember the example you had, um, oh, the Strauss veal plant that wanted to move from Franklin and they wanted to move um, into like that Century City area on on Capitol Drive. So this this was a this was a a wonderful successful business. If they would have moved in, they would have I, I think brought like two hundred jobs or so to an er- immediately to an area that desperately needed them. But then you had a couple of these well not in my backyard types who got involved and the aldermen got involved and they said well maybe maybe we don't want a meat processing plant without ever even having gone out to Strauss and Franklin and seen that you you can't tell the difference between them. It, it's not like Upton Sinclair writing in the jungle in nineteen. 19- 20 about whatever slaughterhouses were like this was a modern facility it would have been wonderful but it's like oh no we don't we don't want this for the area so you, you turn it down you turn down 200 jobs and now it's essentially you know it's empty you know, there, there hasn't been anything that you could fill that with in any sort of meaningful fashion so you have these people that come in and they say well you know we don't we don't want this we don't think that this is a good enough use for the area when it's the use that makes economic sense. It's the use that will say, okay, we're going to be in a position where we can 
you know, we can serve the, the needs of the community and we can provide stuff that the people are going to want. So these communities that are pushing back against dollar stores, I, I understand that, well, we don't want that. I mean, that's there's too many of this type of business or that type of business. The, the answer is, okay, unless you've got really, really good alternatives, I would say, you know, take the growing business, especially the business that's going to be successful. When we come back, Let's revisit a topic that we've discussed before. Is it time to change the name of the city of Madison? Just asking. I'll explain. We'll discuss. And this is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. I just don't know how people who live in Madison can live with themselves. Now, here's the latest story of political correctness. The Madison School Board has just voted unanimously to rename Thomas Jefferson Middle School. Uh, Thomas Jefferson Middle School is now going to be named after Ezekiel Gillespie. It will now be Ezekiel Gillespie Middle School. Ezekiel Gillespie is a uh, leader of the Milwaukee's black community in the late 1980s who went on to secure voting rights for black men in Wisconsin. Um, His case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that black men in Wisconsin had been entitled for the right to vote since 1849. So it's going to be the school in Madison is going to be renamed after him. Well, why are we getting rid of the name Thomas Jefferson? Well, even though Thomas Jefferson is the third president and the author of the Declaration of Independence, um, he, he is now controversial because, of course, he owned slaves he fathered four children with his slave sally hemmings and so because he had this involvement with slavery we now have to eliminate you know traces of of thomas jefferson we, we can't have public buildings that recognize thomas jefferson because we're going to judge you know what he was doing in 1800 by our standards in 2023 so that that's it so Thomas Jefferson Middle School is no more. Now, why do I bring this up? Because, all right, who are the people that eliminated Thomas Jefferson Middle School? Well, it's the Madison School Board. All right, Madison. Madison, the People's Republic of, is named after, wait for it, James Madison, who was, of course, just like Thomas Jefferson, was a founding father of the United States. He was um, one of the authors. He composed some of the first drafts of the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights. He's referred to uh, as the father of the Constitution. He served as president of the United States from 1809 to 1817. Before that, he was the Secretary of State. Matter of fact, you know, he and Thomas Jefferson um, were the founders of what they called the De- Democratic Republican Party, which was America's first opposition political party. So, you know, Madison, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson, uh, their careers are intertwined and things like that. Well, all right, uh, James Madison is now controversial, just like Thomas Jefferson was, was controversial, because um, James Madison, he also owned slaves also owned slaves. On top of that, when James Madison became president in the early 1800s, this is one of the times where you started to have, there, there was expansion. And so you had James Madison, who was 
um, involved in acquiring territory from the French, the Louisiana Purchase. Um, what they also did is, you know, we had this program back then where you had the westward expansion that was starting, and that involved, you know, taking taking land from Native Americans. So James Madison, who's always considered to be hostile to the rights of Native Americans, he was a slave owner, etc., etc. I bring this up because, again, I do not understand how people in Madison, whether it's the Madison School Board or people who live in Madison, I do not understand how... If if you can't have a Thomas Jefferson Middle School, how can you have a community that is named after James Madison? How, in fact, can you live with yourselves if this is, in fact, the situation? So if we now have to start renaming schools because, well, it, it's politically incorrect or we're going to judge, again, by 2023 standards, we're going to judge the actions of people in the 1800s, what, where, where is why do we still have Madison? And my, my suggestion all along has been if we really want to, I mean, do away with the wokeness and, and make people just, you know, happy with themselves, maybe we need to call it Fred. I, I'm just, that, that's always been my suggestion. You know, the, the, the community of Fred in Dane County, you know, the largest city, let's change the name of the state capital. Let's get it away from Madison. Let's just call it Fred moving forward or some other name that you think is appropriate. But no more Thomas Jefferson Middle School. How much longer will it be before the state capital is no longer Madison, but something else? When we come back, I don't think this is really as odd as some people do. I'll explain. We'll discuss. We pick that up right after the top of the hour news. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. How about those bucks, huh? 16 wins in a row. Here's the thing. Even having run off 16 wins in a row, the bucks are still, I believe, only a half game ahead of, of Boston for the best record in the Eastern Conference. I mean, that, that really tells you that, and of course, what you're playing for is playoff seeding and home court advantage and things like that. But it really, it, it tells you, I think, that you know Boston and Milwaukee are, are clearly the, the class of the Eastern Conference, and together with uh, the, the West is more kind of open. open. But I'm going to tell you, if the, if the Bucks can continue to do this, I mean, I don't, I think... They have as good a chance as any team in the league to um, win the NBA championship and, and two championships in three years for Milwaukee. How cool would that be? Okay, I saw this story, and candidly, it did not strike me a- as odd, but it apparently strikes a lot of people on the Internet as odd. So let me, let me kind of back into this. Um, for Valentine's Day. My wife and I went out to we went out to dinner with my friends, our friends Mike and Kathy. We were at a restaurant, and um, my I forget which one whether Fran or Kathy ordered first, but whatever they ordered, when it came to the other lady, they, they just said, "I'll have the same thing. I'm going to have what she's having exactly, whatever the, the meal was." And then I had kind of decided what I wanted to eat, and my friend Mike ordered ordered it, and he was ordering the same thing that I wanted. So I actually said to the waiter, I said, I'm going to have exactly what he's having. So the two guys had the same thing. The two ladies had, had the same thing. Um, last weekend, I was at dinner. and I, By the way, so it sounds like I go out to dinner all the time. I, I don't. My wife cooks at home a lot. And, but we, we were at dinner with a couple friends of ours, two ladies, 
and they both ordered the same thing. One says, okay, this is what I'm having. The other one said, I'm going to have exactly that. So, okay, and I guess I didn't think anything of that, that they, they ordered the same thing. Until I saw this story. President Biden and First Lady's restaurant order spark, sparks strong reaction. And, and here, here's the way the, the story reads. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden raised eyebrows when they reportedly ordered the same dish at a posh D.C. restaurant. The Bidens went to Red Hen, an Italian restaurant in Bloomingdale. The couple ordered two bowls of the restaurant's signature rigatoni, along with grilled bread and butter, chicory salad, and a few glasses of wine. The rigatoni dish, which is made with red sauce, fennel sausage ragu, and pecorino romano, that's, I think, the king of cheeses, is reportedly popular at the restaurant. Okay, social media users, however, were baffled that the Bidens ordered the same meal. Uh, Here's what somebody on Twitter says. I have honestly never heard of a couple, married or otherwise, who ordered the exact same thing at a restaurant. Another, um, let's see, the editor of The Washingtonian says, I would definitely glare at my husband if he ordered the same thing as me, because obviously we need to try as much of the menu as possible. Um, D.C. resident Hannah Madden told the Washington Post, getting the same thing as the person you're eating with is silly. The whole point of going out to eat is getting to try as many things as possible. Um, at first I thought it's funny that everyone is in such a twist about this. And then I realized, oh, wait, I'm in a twist about this as well. All right, our number, 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, let, let's take out the fact that it's it's the president and the first lady. All right, you, you have a couple that goes into a restaurant, and they both order the same thing. And all these people are apparently up in arms about this and are stunned, saying, I've, I've never heard of a couple that orders the same thing in, in a restaurant. Now... I mean, I'm trying to, to think back, and and uh, candidly, you know, my wife and I tend to order different things, but that's because uh, of some dietary stuff. But I, I guess I wouldn't think it's odd, just like I didn't think it was odd on Valentine's Day when, you know, the, the guy across the table from me orders something, which actually had been what I was planning to order. I guess 855-616-1620, that's the old National Bank talk and text line. The, and and I'm, I'm trying to take this out of the context. I don't think this is, like, politically based because, like I say, there are all these foodies who are just all up in arms that a married couple, in this case the Bidens, order the, the same thing. And I, I like, you know, one of the, the commentators, I would definitely glare at my husband, says the Washingtonian editor, if he ordered the same thing because, obviously, we need to try as much of the menu as possible. My response would be, that's not why I'm going out to dinner. I'm not going out to dinner to try as much of the menu as possible. If I'm going to my, if I'm going to a place that I, I know has a really good fish fry or I'm going to a place that has a, a really good steak, 
I'm not going to try as much of the menu as possible. I'm going to order my, my steak. And if I'm going to an Italian restaurant and, gee, they've got great lasagna, for example, I'm going to order the lasagna. And the fact that my wife decides she wants to have the lasagna, that's not going to ch- make me change my, oh, I better not have the lasagna because you did. 855-616-1620. I, I just, I honestly do not understand this controversy. Let's start with Chris in Cedarburg. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Is this is Hello? it unusual for yeah? Hi, is it unusual for a couple to order the same thing? I, I guess I'd never thought of that. Um, I never have either. I mean, we go to several prime rib places, and um, you know, I we order the same thing: prime rib. Um, I may, if he's on a business call or something, you know, privately, I'll make his potato, like mash up sour cream, chives, stuff, just to you know, move it, move it along. But. Um, you know, I don't look at it like, uh, you know, we just have good taste. I mean, if we both like prime rib or we both yeah. like spaghetti and meatballs, it's a complimentary type of thing. You know, I mean, there's certain other restaurants we go to if I have sushi that he may have teriyaki chicken. But majority, I mean, if we go to a steak place or we go to an Italian place, we're probably going to have similar dishes, if not the same dish. Yeah. No, thanks for the call, Chris. I, I guess that's, I mean, look, I, maybe if it's, I guess I'm thinking if you, especially if you're a regular at a restaurant, all right, let's, you know, you're you're a regular at a restaurant. I really love the, you know, fill in the blank. I really love the grouper at this place or the red snapper is absolutely outstanding here. And if you like it and you're a regular, I mean, I can easily see, you know, okay, this this is, you know, this is what I want. I, I love, I love the black grouper and I love the asparagus and they serve it with a risotto. Yeah. And I mean, I, if you're a regulars at this place, I understand it. Now, maybe if it's the first time that you've gone to a place and you don't know the menu, you want to try different sort of things. But I guess I've just never, I, I, I don't, I guess this doesn't strike me as odd enough that you have the entire, you know, uh, social media world in an uproar about it. And like I say, it happens, I was just thinking in the last couple of weeks, it, it's happened, you know, where we've ordered the same things at at, at places. 855-616-1620. Um, Barbara in Brookfield. Barbara, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Barbara. Well, I'm sorry. Hi, hi. You know, I, I'm calling because I I don't get it. These people are in an uproar, and me and my husband order the same thing, thing a lot of times. We've been together 42 years, and we might like the same things. And I'm not going to share mine. I take mine home. <laughs> you know, if I can't eat it all, I take it home. Well, absolutely. No, th- thanks for the call, Barbara. I, th- again, that's just, it just, it is just so odd to me what, what makes the, the news. And I, I mean, I admit, I, I got captured by the headline of the story. I got sucked in. President Biden, First Lady's restaurant order sparks strong reaction. Okay. And I, I was curious about this is now the headline. What is it that, that they did? And it's like they, they ordered the same thing. I, I, it's like, I, I don't know when, I eat at home. I eat the same thing as my wife eats. You know, last night we had dinner at home and we had pork chops and we had cauliflower and um, like a, a little like a side salad, um, you know, caprese salad. That's what we had for dinner. But we both had the same thing. So if we went to a restaurant and, and ordered the same thing, I wouldn't think that it was weird. Ryan in Lacrosse. Ryan, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. 
I, I know the answer to the problem. Okay. Uh, my wife and I tend to order the same things when we go out by ourselves, but if, if we're with our daughters, they insist my wife orders something different, then they all share plates. I personally don't like to share plates, so I, I eat my food. Huh. and I have a, huh. That's what I think it is. The younger generation wants to share everybody's food. Well, huh? I I don't know. When I go to a, I don't know about you, Ryan, but when I when I go to a, a a place and if I really you know like I like the lasagna at this particular place, I don't want to share it with anybody. Order your own darn lasagna. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly right. I agree with you 100. percent So I think it's. A, <laughs> I'm not as old as the Bidens, but I'm 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 65 and I well, would, I order the food that I like and. It's my food. Order your own food. Yeah, so. yeah you're right. <laughs> right. Thanks for calling. It's good. Yeah, the lasagna here is really, really good. I recommend it. But if you, okay, if you don't order it and you, I might, you know, I, I might give you a spoonful of it or like, here's a piece to try this out. But okay, if you order, you know, order your own stuff. I just, I, I don't I don't want to spend any more time on this because I understand this is not the biggest issue in the world. But it just struck me as incredibly odd that, that people, including like all these foodies and stuff that just get all worked up over this. And I'm, I just was wondering if I had been committing this dining faux pas all my life by just, oh, hey, that sounds, boy, I, you know, I, I, you know it's, I, I was trying to decide between two things, and my buddy Mike just ordered this, and that sounds really good. Yeah, and I, I like the, the side dishes he ordered. I'm going to have what he's having. I never realized I was committing a dining faux pas doing that. I'm just... Getting the food I want. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Hi. Our, our, our text line has just exploded with people reacting to this, I, I mean, non-story, really. I mean, and again, because I, I saw the headline. I thought, oh, this is Biden's create this controversy when they're out to dinner. And I think, what's this controversy they created? Did they stiff somebody on the tip or were they rude or whatever? No, it's that they went to this very high-end Tony Italian restaurant in, in D.C. and they both ordered the, the same dish. And and that's created all this controversy. And I think I just I, I just I don't think that that's odd. Um, Jeff, guess we must be weird. We eat the same thing at home and at restaurants as well. Jeff, so funny. We were just talking about this over the weekend. One couple at the table ordered the same meal as another one another and said they almost always do. My husband and I almost never do because we want to try different things and I have different tastes. But it wouldn't be upsetting if we did. Jeff, this is one of the silliest things I've ever heard. Who cares what someone else is ordering? Right. I guess that's my reaction, especially when they're not even there. My husband and I very frequently order the same thing as the other. Of course, there's times when we will try different things as well, and we share the entrees. I can't believe that people have enough time on their hands to care with somebody they don't even know is ordering in a restaurant. Jeff, I work at a restaurant, and this usually happens when an item at a restaurant is so good that the couple is obsessed with the item. Um, that being said my girlfriend and i usually get different things if it is our first time there um no not not the the case i mean again it's just it's one of those things that that's out there so uh go figure this was the latest country of controversy involving joe biden there's many reasons in my opinion to be upset with joe biden that is not one of them interesting little just a, a kind of a news tidbit Fox News has been 
in the media lot. There's this huge defamation suit that is out there being brought by the Dominion Voting Systems. And Dominion Voting Systems, um, they were the ones that were accused initially by Rudy Giuliani and uh, that's the, the crazy lawyer, Sidney Powell, of the, the, the argument was, well, the, the 2020 election was uh, stolen because... These voting machines malfunctioned and people who cast their votes for Trump, they didn't get recorded or they voted for Trump and it was registered as, um, you know, a a Biden vote and things like that. And and they they were out there making these claims and um, on Fox News and a number of the Fox News hosts embraced the these kind of claims. And it's now coming out in the lawsuit that a number of the hosts themselves either doubted the validity of the claims or outright thought this was crazy town, but nevertheless did not represent that position to their their audience. So there's this lawsuit out there suing them for libel and things. I don't, I don't know how it's going to turn out. Um, the 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 protections for you know libel are so very very great that even in a case like this. I still think it's a better than even chance that that Fox News is not found liable. It's one of the reasons why a lot of people in Congress are saying maybe you need to take a look at the libel and slander laws and things like that. But regardless, it's not something, in my opinion, that reflects well on, on Fox News, that you have hosts who are admitting that they are, are touting, I don't know, different theories that they themselves don't believe because there's either some institutional pressure to do it. We don't want to, um, you know, up, upset Trump voters or whatever. It's one of the reasons I, I sent out a text a couple of weeks ago. I, I will tell you this: in 25 years of working at WTMJ, and it's the honest to goodness truth, nobody has ever told me what to say. I, I've never, I've never had a program director or a general manager or an owner call me into their office and say, Jeff, we we want you to talk about this or not talk about that or don't take this position. And I, I can't imagine. You know, the the reaction of what you would do if you were in a situation where, oh, gosh, I don't believe this is to be true, but I'm, I'm going to fake it anyways because my bosses want me to do this or I'm afraid that somebody somewhere might be upset about it. Anyhow, that's the background on all this. But one of the big questions has been what what is the long term effect going to be on Fox News? Let's forget the lawsuit for a minute. But the question is, is this going to cost them viewers? And the early answer is um, no, here's the story. Fox News Channel viewership crushes CNN and MSNBC across the board for two consecutive years now after dominating the news-heavy month of February. Fox News topped CNN and MSNBC in both total and primetime among both total viewers and advertiser-coveted demographics for 24 straight months. Fox News averaged 1.4 million viewers in February, and February is like one of the sweeps months, finishing as the only basic cable channel to crack the 1 million benchmark. MSNBC finished second with 711,000 viewers, almost half, followed by ESPN, HGTV, and CNN. Um, And the numbers are just, they're kind of staggering. So for, for everybody who's hoping for the demise of Fox News and thinking that this lawsuit is going to cause people to bail on them, the reality and what's going on in the real world is that's that's not the case, um, period. So apparently this lawsuit or the fact that maybe some of the hosts were pandering to their viewers 
um, doesn't were Donald Trump. It, it's it's not costing them viewers at this point, and I doubt it's going to cost them viewers in the future. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. There's a story in the local newspaper that I, I think underscores an issue that it, it, it's, it's an undercovered problem, and that is... How are our institutions going to be supported? You know, we've talked about the the Milwaukee Public Museum, which, while nobody wants to say it, in my opinion, is way, 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 way behind its its private financing goals. You know, they've they've gotten commitments for public money, but they need to raise a whole bunch of private money, and I don't see that coming. You've got um, all these different venues we were talking earlier today about. You know, they want to build a soccer stadium and things like that, but they need public money to be able to do that. Um, the story involves the Milwaukee Chamber Theater, which is a, a wonderful institution. They've apparently, um, they're facing huge financial problems, and they, they've had to extend their emergency fundraising appeal till next week because they need to they need to raise enough money to i mean continue to operate and this is a problem i pointed out it's a problem because we have so many wonderful arts groups around here but there there's just a limited amount of dollars that are there and it's you know jane pettit jane pettit she was just the patron saint of, of so much of the arts community because when some of these different things got places got in trouble, you know, you could go to Jane Pettit and she would write a check. Well, you know, she's been gone for a long time now, and unfortunately, while there's many, many very generous philanthropists across the city who support these groups, we got a lot of these groups that are out there. And, you know, they're all competing for, like, the same pocket of dollars. And it's a real, it's a huge challenge. And so the story about the Milwaukee Chamber Theater, I, I think you're going to see it play out more and more moving forward, which makes some of these decisions to, you know, commit big-time money and say, okay, we're going to figure out a way to raise $90 million or whatever. It's not as easy as it might sound. All right, WTMJ breaking news time is 2.31 p.m. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Welcome back. So very glad to have you with us. Well, this is a timely topic given the fact that you've got the auto show that is going on now. There's a story in the Wall Street Journal. And it goes back to the, this whole concept of everything that's old is, is new again. There was there was a certain generation of, of people who grew up knowing how to drive stick shift automobiles. Um, and then, then at some point in time, a- unless you were really a car enthusiast, I, I think you know the, the convenience of having an automatic transmission just kind of overwhelmed it to the point that there's a lot of people, my, my guess is below a certain age, that have never been in a manual transmission car, much less know how to, to drive it. Now, in my case, I, I learned how to drive on an automatic um, when I was in college both of my two roommates had had stick shifts. So I, I kind of ground the gears and learned how to drive in a, uh, gosh, in a Ford. I, I learned how to drive a stick shift in a, Ford, a blue Ford Pinto. And, um, gosh, I forget what the, uh, I forget what Greg's car was. But, I mean, that, that's how I kind of learned how to drive it. And I, I will admit, I have not driven a stick shift in decades. Now, do I think I could do it? 
yeah, I'd probably grind the gears a little bit, but I, I, I could do it. But I don't necessarily really have a desire to do that. I bring this up because here's the story. 20-somethings fueling a stick shift renaissance. Think the manual transmission car is dead? Not yet. Um, following a decades-long decline, um, cars with stick shifts are experiencing a real resurgence. Manuals accounted for about 1.7% of new vehicle sales in 2023, according to J.D. Power data. That's up from 1.2% last year and a low of 0.9% in 2021. Auto Trader Marketplace reports a 13% rise in page views for new manual cars in 2023 compared with this same time for last year. And then they go on and talk about how um, some of the, these car dealers, for example, um, you know, Mazda, manual is now the only option on three of Mazda's five versions of the MX-5 Miata. Acura brought a manual option back to its Integra in June after discontinuing stick shifts in its lineup in 2015. Um, They're releasing a higher performance Integra with no automatic option this year. Uh, The guy from Acura says we're definitely doubling down. He says about a quarter of the 15,000 people who bought the 2023 Integras have already requested manuals. These cars, this is according to the Wall Street Journal, entice younger consumers in the same way that vinyl records and point of point-and-shoot cameras do. Over half of those who opted for manual Integras are between 18 and 46, and about a quarter of those who bought manual Miatas in 2022 are between 18 and 35. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Let's tee this up. The, the stick shift, is it dead? Now, one of the things, one of the reasons that people are saying, hey, we, we want to do this is because, you know, once you go to the world of electric cars, that that's where there aren't transmissions, then, you know, the stick shift really will be dead. So some people are saying, hey, we've heard about these things. We, we want to drive them while we still have, have the option to do it. 855-616-1620. All right. Is, is there a market? And is the market really increasing? And for people who are drive, do have like the manual transmissions, and I still, I have a friend who just, his last car, you know, is an automatic. But before that, it was all manual. And just, I think to this day, he misses that manual transmission. 855-616-1620, is there a resurgence? And will this continue? And I guess my question also is why? Because at one point in time, there was a savings in gas mileage. If you had the manual transmission, it was lighter on gas. Most people say that's not the case anymore, that, that to the extent that, that it's pretty much, you know, six one half dozen the other. 855-616-1620. In time for the auto show, let's talk about the return resurgence of manual transmissions. Do you get it? We discuss in just a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. If you're just tuning in, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal about how manual transmission cars, the stick shifts, are are making a comeback. Now, it's not like 50% of the new cars are being sold or with them, but the the number of people who are buying stick shift automobiles has been increasing over the last couple years, and we're discussing, you know, whether or not that's going to be a trend that ends up continuing. Jeff, I'm a 64-year-old woman. I love my five-speed manual Civic. Makes me 
feel like a kid again. 855-616-1620. Jim in Germantown. Jim, you're on WTMJ. My wife uh, does uh, home health care in Central City, <clears throat> and uh, she's driven three stick shift cars in a row now, and we feel they're safer because they're much more difficult to steal. Well, you, you know, it's it's interesting that you mention that because I, I have, I, I would say, a dozen texts to make exactly that same point. It said, you know, the 14-year-old car thieves that are out there, they, they, they don't know how to drive the stick shift. So it, it's kind nope. of like the club, except this works. Right. Even uh, parking, let's say, uh, at a hospital parking lot, there, there are many, or, uh, you know, if you have valet, there are times when the valet has got to get someone older to, to uh, park the car because they can't drive stick yet. Yeah. No, thanks for the call, Jim. I appreciate it. You know, it, it's always, I, I think back, it's not a stick shift story, but remember when um, Chris Abley was, uh, after he stepped down as county executive, he was driving, some, he, he got carjacked, or there was attempted carjacking on Capitol Drive just as you're going into Shorewood. And the carjackers, he was driving some, like, really, like, high-end BMW, I think, and it got him out of the car. And, you know, for some of these foreign cars, there's a little bit of trick to it. It's not just you push the button and put it in gear. There, there's some steps you have to take. And, and they didn't know how to drive the car and got mad and ended up, you know, pulling off and I think shot at the car or something because they were mad. Yeah, you know, the stick shift is the same sort of thing. It's like, okay, how do I do this and what do I push in? Dave in Muskego. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Dave, Dave, Dave. Okay, oh, let's oh, yeah. go, go ahead, Dave. You're on the air. Hi, Dave. Okay, I'm with you. A lot okay. of the kids nowadays, you're 100% right, a lot of kids up even in the 30s don't know how to drive them at all. And I've, like I said, I've been to a couple of dealerships. I had to actually show the salesman how to drive it. Uh, Corvettes, uh, some of your Mustangs, things like that. They're really nice cars. This 20-year-old with his dad came in to buy a car one time. Mustang had no clue. Yeah, I want the car. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, dad will buy it for me. No problem. But I want to learn how to drive it. No problem. Be more than happy to show you how to drive it, but you got to learn. You know, places like Just Drive, if you bring your own car, it's a stick shift, be more than happy to show you how to drive the thing. I've learned on a Chevy Monza. It was a <laughs> I remember those, yeah. Car. yeah. Yeah, little awesome car, side pipes, look cool, rocket, rocket rims. Awesome car, fun to drive. Don't ever share one with your family, though, because you go through clutches like crazy, but awesome car. <laughs> Dave, thank, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Well, this, you know, it, it is interesting because the people who are the enthusiasts are, are in fact, the enthusiasts. And I, I got to admit, I never got that bug. I, I, I learned how to do it, like I said, in college, just because there were times when I, I, I'd have one of my roommate's cars and stuff. And I, I suspect I, I probably contributed to, to wearing out the clutch um, you know, on, on a couple of those vehicles. So I feel bad. Jeff, I have had seven people in my life try to teach me how to drive a manual. None of them could do it. I've just resigned myself to driving automatics, and I've been happy ever since. Um, well, you've got that element that's there. Um, let's talk to um, Peter in Glendale. Peter, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Ah, thanks for my call. I've been driving since I was about 16 years old, which is about 58 years. And I have owned one automatic in my life, and I wouldn't drive another one. Um, I've got a, a five-speed Honda Element and a six-speed Miata, and you, I just feel like I have more control of the car. Um, you get better pickup, better gas mileage, and uh, I feel like I'm, I'm I'm driving the car with an automatic. I just don't feel like I have total control of the car. 
So, it's, but it's also it's, I, it sounds like to me you sounds like you think, you think it's fun. You, you, you it also sounds like you enjoy driving and you think it's fun. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I well, I especially love driving my six-speed Miata. But um, I love when people tell me that if they're driving in the inner city, it's too much work driving a manual shift. I, I absolutely just laugh at that. Yeah, no, thanks for call, Peter. Well, right, I mean, people people that know, if you do it on a regular basis, it's something that you, I think that you get, you, you just end up getting used to. Um, let's talk to Randy in Greendale. Randy, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I uh, I listen to you uh, every day. I'm retired now, so I get to listen to you every day. I got Thanks. to shake your hand at State. I got to shake your hand at State Fair. That was pretty cool. Well, um, you come on out this year. I, we'll be back at State Fair, so you come out again <laughs> and do the same thing. I'd love to talk to you. This is a great topic. I I'm 67 years old, and I got my driver's license in an Opal Cadet with a, a four speed stick on the floor. Um, and I tell you what, it was a fun car to drive. In fact, uh, shortly thereafter, I drove a delivery van for a liquor store that had uh, four-speed on the column next to the steering wheel. And that goes way back. So right. you had uh, four, four different shifts on the steering wheel in, in a delivery van, and I drove that. So I, it was always fun, and I, I would welcome it back. I think... Uh, there's nothing wrong with hitting that clutch and uh, going from second to third and 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 going from third down to second when you're slowing down at a stop sign. And, and yeah. oh, I loved it. Randy, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. it. And, and I'm very serious. If you're out at State Fair, I, I think I'm, I'm positive that we're going to be back out there. So you stop by our broadcast facility. I come out during the breaks, and I love to meet everybody who's so kind to listen to this program on a regular basis. I, I do – look, I mean, I think that – I think the analogy that the story had that I referred to earlier about like the vinyl record um, rebirth is sort of the it's kind of the the same thing. I think that there's people who I I don't know, you know, grew up with the vinyl records and stuff and then got away from them as we moved away from vinyl records to cassettes and um, then on to the CDs and now all the the downloading and things like that. And and I think there's this kind of nostalgic thing that's out there. I think there's always going to be a, a market for the manual transmission cars. Grant in Wauwatosa. Grant, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, I have a story about a stick shift. And I won't mention his name. He's my uh, brother-in-law, but he's passed on. But about 15 years ago, and he was probably about 60, he uh, won a chance. Well, he, he had a key. There were about 10 people with keys, and he had a chance to get open the doors to the Mustang. And whoever had the right key won it. So he won a brand-new Mustang. But he had never learned how to drive stick, so his grandson had to drive the car home for him. And I said, wow, that's really cool. You want a brand-new Mustang. You got a great, fun car there. But he never learned how to drive it, and uh, he ended up selling it. I was <laughs> so disappointed because I thought, boy, if I want a new Mustang, I would keep that car. You know? Oh, oh I, I, and learn how to drive it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not it's not that hard to learn how to, to drive it. And then once you once you get used to it, it's kind of like second nature. The problem is just getting used to it. Right. 
So that's my story. But um, thanks for the call, Grant. I, I would have given it, it to my grandson. Yeah, well, or okay. or no, or, or or whatever. I know I would have I would have learned how to drive the darn thing for goodness sakes. That's yeah, it. I would. And, and, I and anyway, thanks for calling. Grant, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Um, in any event, maybe I'll, I'll try to link this. I think, unfortunately, it's kind of behind a paywall. But it, I'm not saying that it's this huge trend, but it's at least a little trend. And stick shifts are coming back. By the way, I think John McCure is out at the auto show. We're going to check in with him in just a couple minutes, find out what he has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around. 256, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Thank you for spending your Thursday afternoon with me. We're reaching that point where I, I don't have to go home, but I can't stay here because we've got a special edition of Wisconsin's Afternoon News coming up. John McCure. Oh, Jeff, this is incredible. We're down here at the Wisconsin Center. It's the auto show, the auto truck show, the international show. It's kind of fun to be down here, Jeff. I know you've done this before. Before everybody gets in here and you can walk through the rooms with all the cars and it's quiet and you can just kind of see everything that's new. And the good news is that they don't sell anything here. So you're not going to be like walking into a car dealership. They're here to answer your questions, the Ford guys, the Chevy guys, etc. But they're not trying to sell you anything. So it's fun because you can sit in the cars and walk around and check it out without having to feel like, no, I'm just browsing, no, I'm just browsing, because you can't buy anything. So that's a super, super cool thing. And I already found the British cars. Yeah, they're right near us, actually, <laughs> right across the way. They're hey, beautiful and shiny. A couple of things. They are pretty. A couple of things related to the auto show. Jim Tolkien is the president of the Automobile Dealers Association of Mega Milwaukee, and he will be with us here to kind of set it up for us. If you plan on coming down here sometime in the next few days, Jim will have some great tips for you. Also... EV cars and EV trucks, they are coming, and they're coming big time. Some of these trucks that you never thought would have an electric version, like the Tahoe or the Suburban, it's going to happen. You can check those out here. And I want to have the discussion about whether we're ready as a nation for electric vehicles or not, because I'm not convinced that we are. And so we will be joined by a guy, Brian Moody, who's an EV specialist, to take us inside that part of the conversation are we ready? When will we be ready? And is it inevitable? Are gas cars going to really, really become thing that's harder and harder to find as we move five, ten years out from now? So we'll do that coming up during the 3 o'clock hour as well. And speaking of cars and roads, Robin Voss once again floating the idea of toll roads in the state of Wisconsin. He thinks that is a really good idea and a way to pay for all the improvements that need to happen. What do you think? We'll take your calls and we'll take your texts on that coming up during the 4 o'clock hour as well. Lots of fun. The latest on Aaron Rodgers. That's an addition to the fun. And Charles Benson from TMJ4 during the 5 o'clock hour. We are broadcasting live from the Greater Milwaukee Auto and Truck Show in the Wisconsin Center. Come on down. We're here till 6 o'clock. We've even got a couple prizes that we're giving away to folks if you stop on by. We are kind of in the northeast part of the building. The news of the day is straight ahead right here on WTMJ.